We're turning tonight to one of the most well-known and well-loved chapters in all the Bible, Paul's beautiful and powerful commendation of love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a passage that is exalted in its theme, its elegance, in its expression, and crystal clear in its message. There's no mistaking the overall points that Paul is getting across in these words. Without love, we are nothing. Without love, we're nowhere spiritually. Without love, we're useless, unprofitable, and of no spiritual benefits to anyone. Love is what is of paramount importance in the Christian life. It is the crowning virtue surpassing all others. Love is what is needed over and above everything else we might possibly possess as individuals and as local churches. And uh, this chapter uh, forms the centerpiece to Paul's prolonged discussion about spiritual gifts. The church in Corinth, to whom he's writing, was very rich indeed in terms of the various endowments and capacities that had been bestowed on them by God's spirits. But they were defective and deficient in something of far greater importance. They were weak and feeble in their love one for another. So they reveled in all the exciting and extraordinary gifts and abilities they had been given, and they seemed to have had an especially high regard for the gift of speaking other languages. And yet all the while, this gift-rich fellowship was rife with factions and envy, strife, haughty pride, lawsuits among the believers, disregard for other people's consciences, and appalling selfishness. And so Paul's aim here is to remind them that there is something more necessary more important, more valuable, or to use his exact words, more excellent than all the supernatural phenomena that were so gripping their attention. Uh, In the words of, of chapter 12, verse 31, he's showing them a more excellent way, the way of love, which has such high precious and abiding worth. That's what they should be striving to excel in more than everything else. That's what they should be prizing more highly than all these spiritual gifts that they're boasting in. That's what should be binding the church together in unity and be ever at its core. And what a challenge this passage always ought to be to us as we realize what it is that matters more than all giftedness, more than all knowledge, more than all outward achievement of greater importance than all of that is that we love one another. 
And so we're going to consider these verses tonight and think firstly about the primacy of love, then the properties of love, and lastly, the permanence of love. Verses 1 to 3 then set forth the primacy of love. It is something more important, more necessary, and more profitable than anything else at all within the church. And Paul gives a number of examples of things which sound ever so impressive and spectacular, but which are of no value if love is not present. And he seems deliberately to be using some extreme examples here. He's not necessarily saying that all these things actually had occurred in Corinth or were even uh, possible in the the usual uh, operation of things. He's imagining someone being gifted to an absolutely unprecedented degree or or doing the, the most astonishing things. And he's saying that even if these things were operative in your church, without love, they would be worth nothing. So his first example is of speaking in in languages, in in other tongues. That seemed to be the gift that these Corinthians were especially preoccupied with. They were all, it seems, eager to speak in tongues. But Paul says, even if I were to speak not only in the tongues of men, but to to go further than that and, and speak in heavenly, angelic tongues as well, If I didn't have love, I'd just be like one of those loud, noisy, grating, irritating gongs or a clanging cymbal. I'd just be a loud, deafening cacophony of booming noise. Now, incidentally, there's no strong reason to deduce from this that the gift of tongues actually involved talking in angel speech. Uh, When you compare scripture with scripture, we discover the gift of tongues involve the ability to speak a foreign human language that you hadn't actually learned. That's the phenomenon you read about on the day of uh, Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out in power. It wasn't an unintelligible, ungrammatical, repetitive string of disconnected sounds, uh, but proper earthly languages that were spoken And people in the crowd could discern their own native languages being uttered. Paul's point here would seem to be that even if he he went a step further than that and uh, he were able to uh, adopt the speech of the celestial hosts, even then it it would be vain and unprofitable if he didn't have love. And his second example is of unprecedented prophetic powers. Uh, Even if, uh, Paul says, I had such a level of prophetic insight that my understanding was completely perfect and my knowledge inexhaustible, without love I would still be nothing. And what if Paul had an extraordinary measure of faith so that he could literally command great towering mountains to slide along the ground or to 
simply disappear into a pile of dust. Surely that would make him a most useful and remarkable person, the kind of person who would be an asset to any church. No, says Paul, if I didn't have love but could do that, I would be of no value at all. I would be nothing. And Paul gives some final examples in verse 3, things which are not so much supernatural but which could feasibly be done but which would appear to be outstandingly sacrificial i suppose he were to give away absolutely everything he had the entirety of his possessions down to his very last penny or the first century equivalent surely that would be quite something or what if he were to lay down his very life and uh, surrender his mortal body to the flames in martyrdom? No, Paul says. If those things were acts devoid of true and genuine love, then they would be of no profit at all. They would be hollow, empty acts without true worth and value. Paul's point is very clear. It does not matter what you do. What powers you might exhibit, how much you might know, how far you might go in the performance of outward deeds. If you don't have love, you're useless and unprofitable. Love is what really matters. And how we all need this vital and most challenging point to sink in deep The measure of where you are spiritually and of your Christian growth, health and maturity is not in how much theological awareness you have or how gifted you are or how many things you have done outwardly for the kingdom or how much you've achieved over the years in church service, but your love for the brethren. You might have excellent doctrinal understanding and be able to argue convincingly from the scriptures in defense of all manner of right and correct teachings and your Bible knowledge might be second to none. But if you don't have love, you remain an immature baby Christian. You might be an articulate Bible teacher, an arresting Preacher, a very skilled communicator of God's word to others, but if you don't have love, then your spiritual health is in a very poor state. Indeed, you might be extremely active and busy, and you throw yourself into the works of the church, maybe involved in all kinds of ministries and outreach with a a long service record of contributions to different activities and Meetings, but if you don't have love, you are falling far, far short of the mark. Love is what really matters. Loving one another was the key commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples in John 13. It's meant to be the distinguishing hallmark of his followers. A new commandment that I, uh, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that's the newness of the commandment. There are many commands to love in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, love in this manner, like I've loved you, self-givingly, sacrificially, Calvary kind of love. 
And in Romans 13, Paul says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love sums up the duty that we have towards our fellow man. And in Colossians 3 verse 14, Paul talks of love as the supreme virtue, the one which binds everything else together in perfect harmony. And throughout the New Testament, you keep on finding that love one for another is continually being urged and commended and commanded over and over again. And so we really do need to have it most firmly fastened into our minds that it's love that's of paramount importance in the church. I wonder, is that properly factored into your thinking, your ethos, your priorities? That above being knowledgeable or busy or dynamically engaged in all manner of external things, you're striving to act in love towards others, especially those who are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Does your scale of what's important need to be adjusted in the light of these strong words from the Apostle? Other things are important, but love is what matters most. Let's think secondly about the properties of love. Verses 4 to 6, what does it actually mean to love other people? What does it involve in reality? Well, in in verses 4 to 6, Paul sets forth a number of properties of true love. He tells us what it looks like. And as you scan down his description, notice he doesn't define love in terms of feelings. In our culture, love tends to be thought of as a kind of emotion, a warm, fuzzy kind of sentiment that you feel in your heart. And love may indeed involve emotion, but that's not what it really is in essence. Love here is defined in terms of attitudes and actions. And that's a very important thing to grasp hold of. Many Christians have prolonged struggles with assurance because they lack the kind of deep inward feelings that they think they ought to have if they were genuine believers. They don't feel all that often powerful, spiritual emotions surging through their whole being. They don't feel a strong, intense sensation of love towards other Christians. And so they often doubt whether they really can be saved or not in the light of love being given as a test in Scripture of true faith. But the Bible doesn't actually place a huge amount of emphasis at all on feelings. That's not to deny there can be very strong feelings and emotions involved in the Christian life. But they're not the decisive indicators of authentic spiritual experience. And in harmony with the rest of scripture, Paul unpacks what love looks like here. Not in terms of how we feel, but in terms of attitudes and actions. And it's noteworthy that in this description, uh, Paul, in, in the original language, in the Greek, he, he's using verbs rather than adjectives, doing words rather than describing words. He's not just 
listing static character traits, but he's expressing how love actively relates towards others. So what does he say? He says love suffers long or is patient. Love doesn't get infuriated and exasperated with other people, finding them to be a nuisance. But love is, is slow to anger. It has a long fuse. It puts up with things. It's forbearing. It doesn't lash out at people, but bears with them in spite of all their failures and weaknesses. It's not necessarily blind to the faults in others, but it continues with them without losing its cool. It shows restraint in the face of even very hurtful wrongs and injuries received. And love is kind, Paul says. It involves being concerned about the needs of others, being focused upon them and launching into action to help and support and assist others and alleviate their troubles in any way we can. And love does not envy, so it means we're not vexed and uh, disgruntled when we see others attaining success or prosperity or more prominence than ourselves, but we're glad for them. And uh, we don't feel bitter and hard done by if someone else receives recognition and commendation and we feel left out. We're glad for them because we want what's best for the other. And love does not parade itself, it's not, it's not boastful, it doesn't put on an ostentatious display drawing attention to its own wonderfulness like a strutting peacock so that we make sure we broadcast to others how great re- we really are and all the, the wonderful things that we have done. No, love means we don't brag about our importance and our attainments and our achievements, putting ourselves on a pedestal above others and Wanting everyone else's applause, we're happy to shrink away into the background and do good to others without trumpeting it forth. And love is not puffed up, it's not, it's not arrogant, it's not inflated with a haughty sense of superiority over others like a, a balloon with too much air blown into it. We don't look down smugly on others as though they were far, far beneath us and the levels we've attained to. And love does not behave rudely, doesn't behave in an unseemly fashion. Instead of being inconsiderate and insensitive and brash, love has regard for what is proper, what is honourable, what's decent, your alert to the feelings and reactions and sensibilities of others. You, you factor uh, what effects your behavior will have upon them into how you actually do behave. And love does not seek its own. It doesn't insist on its own way all the time. It means you're not just looking out for number one and trying to serve your own interests, but you're, you're willing to relinquish your own rights if necessary and, and sacrifice them because the benefit that will come to others is more important to you than any personal gain you might achieve. 
And love is not provoked. We could say it's not irritable. It means you're not always taking offence at what other people do and say, all tetchy and as prickly as a cactus. And love thinks no evil. It could be rendered love is not resentful. Love doesn't automatically assume the worst about people and jump to hasty conclusions. They did that because of this. I know why they said that thing. It was calculated uh, to hurt or what have you. Love doesn't hastily accuse another person of wrong and it doesn't bear grudges and keep a, a record of other people's grievances, the things they've done that have grieved you, like someone who's always brooding on how much those other people have hurt me and that carefully jots down every offence in an overflowing notebook. And love does not rejoice in iniquity. It derives no pleasure from doing evil or from hearing about and observing the sins or the falls of others. It it grieves and laments over unrighteousness wherever it is seen, whether in yourself or in others. And positively, love does rejoice in the truth. If you love, it means you're gladdened when the truth is prevailing, that instead of delighting in falsehood and deceit and guile and pretense, you cherish honesty and integrity and you, you value and crave what is right. And love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So we're willing to receive hurts and injury from others without grumbling and getting all ratty. And we're ready to take people at face value and not prejudge them and and mentally put them in a certain category. Uh, But we give them the benefit of the doubt rather than always being suspicious of other people's Motives, And we don't easily give up on people because of past failures or disappointments, but we're optimistic about the future and we persevere with people in spite of setbacks and offences. We refuse to let their upsetting behaviour snuff out our dogged love for them. This is Paul's beautiful portrayal of what love is. It's not much there about feelings, but the attitudes we entertain and and harbour towards others and and then how that shows in the way we act towards them and the point is often made that this kind of love is seen most beautifully in the Lord Jesus Christ himself he is the perfect example of love just think about how he suffers long with you puts up with all your foibles your mistakes your offences your repeatings of the same sins and does he give up on us and write us off and wash his hands of us no he he persists with us and think of how kind he is towards you the lavish scale of the gifts that he purchases with his own lifeblood and puts into your possession for free jesus christ is is the enfleshment of this kind of self-giving love Gloriously true of the Lord Jesus. And as you read about his interactions with people in the Gospels, you see this marvellous forbearance and selflessness of the sort commended here. And it is that love of Christ which is to melt away our unloving attitudes and drive us into the way of love. But 
Paul's primary aim here in this passage is not that we admire Jesus, first and foremost. That's not his practical aim here. His aim is that we ourselves should live like this. This is not a lovely piece of sentimental idealism. This is a set of practical instructions that we're meant to be going out and putting into action. Now, we can't live like this. It's beyond you to live like this without the help and empowerment of the Saviour living in you and through you by his Spirit. And we're never going to fulfill this description of love perfectly here and now in this life. But is it the case that all too often we use our natural weakness and inherent sinfulness as an excuse not to put that much effort into actually changing and altering the way we live. We can salve our consciences, can't we? When we read passages like this and say, well, we're all sinners, aren't we? So we can't really be expected to live like this in reality. But Paul's purpose here is practical. He wants these Corinthians to recognize their own appalling deficiency and do something about it. And we likewise mustn't just rest in the fact that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ and say, well, I haven't shown this kind of love, but he lived out this kind of life for me in my place. That is magnificently true. But now he calls you personally, individually, to go out and be like he was, to walk as he walked. So in terms of our acceptance with God and our entry into glory, yes, that hinges 100% not on how well we exhibit love, but on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and his offering up of that perfectly righteous life upon the cross. Only by his blood and righteousness can unloving people like us possibly enter the world of love that is to come. And yet having embraced that love, revealed in the gospel and having laid hold of Jesus Christ as our only hope of acceptance into the kingdom of God, we're then to take on board what Paul, Christ's spokesman, says here very seriously, recognize our own failures and shortcomings, and then make it our specific continuing aim and goal and determination that by the help of the loving spirit of Christ now dwelling within us, we will actively strive and endeavor to improve. Driven on and motivated by that incredible and astonishing and superlative love that Jesus Christ has shown to us. A love so vast that he was prepared even to lay down his own unblemished, spotless, glisteningly clean, altogether loving life to atone for our guilt and unlovingness. Remember how Jesus summed up the two greatest, or what Jesus referred to as the two greatest commandments. Both involve love, love towards God and love towards our fellow man. And therefore the greatest sins are surely to break the greatest commandments. Deficiency in love is the ugliest expression of sin. And yet for that lack of love, Christ atones with his own precious blood. 
But he didn't die for us so that we might continue to live self-centered lives. He bore our sins on that cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And so you and I need to be making it our specific, earnest prayer, even this very week, that by his power, our love will abound more and more. Is that a living priority in your life? I am here in this world to love, to love him and to love those whom he has put around me in this world. You are nowhere spiritually if love is not a priority, the kind of love Paul defines here. And then turning to verses 7 to 13, we see the permanence of love. Love never fails, says the apostle. It's something that has eternal value and eternal significance. It's not just something that belongs to this world, but it's something that will last and endure throughout all eternity. And Paul presses this home by making a series of contrasts between the present and the future, between the now and the then. And these verses have been interpreted in various ways by uh, different people. Uh, Some believe that the contrast Paul is making here is between the uh, very early days of the Christian church, what we might call its infancy, and a a soon-to-come period, uh, what could be called its maturity. And according to to that interpretation, the, the perfect thing that is spoken of in verse 10, uh, that which is perfect coming, uh, is the completion of the New Testament scriptures. Once they had been finished, there would uh, no longer be any need for things like prophecy and uh, tongues, because they only communicate part of God's truth. And uh, Numbers 12, 6 to 8 is cited in favor of that view, because there God contrasts the less clear revelation that comes through prophecies and visions with the way God speaks to Moses, uh, mouth to mouth, and beholding God's likeness. Uh, So some understand the contrast here as being between the incomplete revelation that comes through tongues and prophecies and the complete revelation we have in the Bible. But the more common, and I believe more fitting interpretation, is that the contrast is between this present age and the age to come. It's a contrast between time and eternity. And uh, those who hold this view would point out that the kind of very exalted language used here does seem to point to something above and beyond the completion of the Bible. And if you look at the second part of verse 12, um, it does seem to fit better with this interpretation. Would the Apostle Paul who had received so much direct and personal revelation from the Lord, really say that he had only an impartial and, uh, only a partial, rather, and incomplete knowledge in comparison to what we now have with the finished Bible? Was there really a massive gulf between what Paul knew when he was here on earth and what we know in the 21st century in terms of God's revelation? Compared to what he would know in eternity, yes, there's a gulf. His knowledge was small and limited, but 
Surely not that small and limited compared to what we have in the complete scripture. So I do think this passage is better understood as a contrast between the present age and the new creation to come. Paul's main point being that while other things are temporary and transient, love will last forever and ever. So first he stresses the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. Uh, The gifts of prophecy, tongues, and supernatural knowledge would not continue indefinitely. He's saying the, the Corinthians were prizing such gifts very highly, but they needed to see them in their proper perspective. They were just temporary means of conveying truth to God's people, whereas love will never end. And then Paul highlights the partial nature of these spiritual gifts. We know in part he says, and we prophesy in parts. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in parts will be done away. These supernatural means of uh, Christian knowledge and understanding don't provide us with a full and complete and exhaustive knowledge of God and his ways. All that's essential for salvation And for living the Christian life is revealed to us, but there are so many other things that remain hidden and undisclosed. And then Paul uses an analogy from the physical realm. Children aren't meant to remain children indefinitely. Their childish speaking and thinking and reasoning is meant to be left behind once mature manhood is reached. And we likewise will one day leave behind our present earthly condition and enter a far higher level of knowledge and understanding and experience. 1 John 3 verse 2 tells us we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So We are destined for a state of of existence even far above what we currently know as God's adopted children. But although we will be changed greatly in that day, and so much of what we were will be left behind, love will not come to an end. And Paul uses a second analogy in verse 12. Uh, uh, Corinth was known for its production of mirrors which wouldn't have been like our glass mirrors. They were made of a polished metal so that the reflection was far less clear than what we're used to. Paul likens our current knowledge to someone looking into a mirror like that. Though uh, through prophecy and the like, uh, we have understanding. It's, It's somewhat blurred and indistinct, but in the age to come, we will see in a direct, unhazy kind of way, face It's a face, like seeing someone physically before your eyes. And that expression is used of the way God spoke to Moses. Uh, For example, in Exodus 33, verse 11, describing the direct and immediate and intimate way in which the Lord communicated with his servant. And in the future, this is the kind of experience we will have with God. We won't need to read any books or listen to sermons, or hear any words of prophecy, Revelation 22 verse 4 tells us that God's servants will behold his face. Our present partial knowledge 
will give way to a full and a direct vision of the Almighty, even as God himself has an all-embracing and all-penetrating sight of us in the present. We are known by him. And so Paul wants the Corinthians to see the things they're getting so excited about in their proper place. They do have a function. They do communicate something of God's truth. But unlike love, they were only ever designed for this present passing earthly existence. But love is forever and that's why it's greater even than faith. Even than hope. Now, some understand verse 13 as meaning that faith, hope, and love are all things that endure forever. But the use of the word now and now abide faith, hope, and love suggests Paul is is thinking about them abiding throughout the present age, especially as that's what we're saying he means by the word now in verse 12, the now contrasted with the then. For the time being, those are the three things of paramount importance. All need to be exercised, faith, hope, and love. But among that trio, love is the very greatest of them, as his very final phrase says, because the time will come when faith is turned into sights. You will not need to believe in anything you can't see any longer. And the time will come when all the things you're hoping for will have turned into solid reality. And as Paul says elsewhere, who hopes for what he sees? But love isn't just for the present age, it is for all eternity. Heaven will be forever a world of Love, a place where we continually express and receive and revel in love one toward another and from God himself. We will be totally immersed and saturated and enveloped in an endless realm of pure, undying, blissful, perfect love. And so it's love that we must be prizing and valuing and seeking to show and demonstrate over and above all other things in the Christian life. Love is what matters most. Love is what will last forever. So does love truly have the position in your personal priorities that it ought to have? Do you recognize that it is the most vital ingredient in any company of the Lord's people? Has it sunk into you how essential it is that whatever our differences, whatever our contrasting personalities, whatever our varying temperaments, we're to put the good of others above our own, we're to treat our spiritual siblings as we ourselves would wish to be treated and we're to stick by each other and show kindness, self-sacrificial kindness to each other and persevere with each other through thick and thin come what may. How can we do that? Only when we're overwhelmed with a vision and a sense and an apprehension of the unparalleled, perfect love that God himself has put on display in that while we were still 
impatient, unkind, boastful, arrogant, self-seeking, grudge-bearing sinners. Christ died for us. Praise be to him. Amen.